0: Welcome to Grizz Greats, the Coaching Tree Podcast, Episode 7. Ryan Tutel alongside Colton Juanes, And today, Colter, exciting to move in to what you might think of as Era 2 with Larry Kristoviak, who came back to his alma mater after an unbelievable career, perhaps the greatest player in the history of the University of Montana, certainly one of them, and then went on, obviously, to an outstanding career at multiple levels, but primarily the NBA. Have you heard of the NBA,
1: Coulter? (laughs) I would say, I mean, I think that everybody that's been involved with Grizz basketball for the duration of this history would tell you that Michael Ray Richardson is the most talented player Montana's ever had. But there's no question that Larry Kostoviak's the most accomplished player Montana has ever had. He's the most accomplished player in the history of the Big Sky Conference. He won the MVP three years in a row. He's the only player in conference history with 2,000 points and 1,000 rebounds. And that's coming from a kid who grew up in Shelby, Montana, and went to high school at Missoula Big Sky who got recruited by no one, got recruited by Montana, and that's it. And so a great testament to his work ethic. But you mentioned the second era of University of Montana men's basketball. I mean, you talk about from Judd Heathcote to Jim Brandenburg, Mike Montgomery, Stu Morrow, Blaine Taylor, Don Holst. When Don Holst was controversially and surprisingly fired after leading the Grizz at the NCAA Tournament, Wayne Hogan made a splashy hire. He went outside the family and he hired Pat Kennedy. And Pat Kennedy had spent a lot of time at Florida State and then DePaul. And it seemed like a slam dunk, a hire that a school like Montana should never be able to make. And then it was basically quickly affirmed that it would, was a hire that a school like Montana never should make. And Pat Kennedy only lasted two years. It was two of the most down years the program has seen. And then he split town for Towson. Wayne Hogan was gone. But that set the stage. It's like Don Holst said. I listened to that podcast, the Don Holst episode recently, and he said, sometimes you have to lull to rise again. And Holst had given Kristoviak his coaching start as an assistant, and I know that Kristoviak himself wanted a chance to help revitalize his alma mater, and it absolutely set the stage. Kristoviak, more than any other coach in the last 20 years in the Big Sky Conference, proved that if you play an insanely tough non-conference schedule and your team peaks in March – you can have success. They did not win the big sky either of Kostoviak's two seasons of the regular season, but they won the Big Sky tournament both years and then won a tournament game his second and final season in Montana. Pretty remarkable. Only two seasons as the
0: head coach at the University of Montana: o four and o five, and o five and o six. And yet, remembered obviously because of who he was as a player coming through to his alma mater. But going to two tournaments and winning the last tournament game—not just at Montana, but for the Big Sky Conference in the NCAA tournament in that second year, o uh, five and o six. He also is probably the guy who made the biggest single leap from, in a coaching standpoint, from Montana going from. Missoula to Milwaukee, Wisconsin to be the head coach of the Milwaukee Bucks. And obviously we know now is still the current head coach at the University of Utah, where he's been for nine seasons now at this point as, as we're recording this here. So, a tremendously accomplished guy all the way around now in both the playing world and the coaching world, and a really remarkable story. I mean, he moved to Missoula under perhaps not the greatest circumstances as, as a kid, as a high school kid, uh, to live with other family members, and and yet through that adversity found a voice and a positive expression through basketball. And you look now, and Larry Kostowiak and his wife Jan have five children and a wonderful family and life right now in uh, in Salt Lake City. It's an awesome story at a lot of levels, a great redemption story in many ways.
1: I'm excited for people to listen to this specific episode, too, because if you've ever watched Larry Kustowiak play, he took no prisoners. He has as high a motor and plays with as much of an edge as anybody you'll ever find. And coaching, he looks like he's about to spontaneously combust half the time because he's going so hard, he's yelling so much. When he does the crushed red velvet sport coat,
0: that's the one that I'm
1: just like, <laughs> let's go, Larry. Sometimes you sometimes know? his face is almost as red <laughs> as the right. coat. That's why this episode was so awesome, though, because he couldn't have been nicer. I mean, he's And he is such a nice guy. He loves basketball. He's just really passionate when it comes to hitting the hardwood, whether it's as a player or as a coach. But I'm really excited for people to hear his stories and his memories of his time because he's had multiple stints. Played, left. Assistant coach, left. Head coach. And then left again. So uh, one of the guys that's returned multiple times. And uh, great talking with Coach K. Grizz Greats the Coaching Tree is brought to you by Gary Bryan and the Bryan team. Gary Bryan of Berkshire Hathaway. Berkshire Hathaway prides itself on providing the community of Western Montana with full-time real estate professionals who are here for you whenever you need them. Berkshire Hathaway knows that buying and selling are huge decisions. If you have any questions, big or small, give Gary Bryan and the Bryan team at Berkshire Hathaway a call. They have your best interests in mind, whether you're in the market for commercial real estate, or residential real estate? Gary Bryan at Berkshire Hathaway, Montana Properties, is proud to support Montana Grizzly Athletics. He's been selling residential and commercial real estate in Missoula County for over 25 years and has always been a passionate fan and supporter of University of Montana men's basketball. Give Gary Bryan and the Bryan team a call today at 406-880-4141. That's 406-880-4141. Gary Bryan and the Bryan team at Berkshire Hathaway, your local real estate experts. Please enjoy Grizz Great's The Coaching Tree, Episode 7,
0: Larry Kristoviak. Well, happy now to start our newest episode of Grizz Great's The Coaching Tree with the current Utah Utes head coach and former University of Montana player and coach from 04 to 06, Larry Kristoviak. Coach Kristoviak, thanks so much for taking the time. How are you?
2: Doing great. Yeah, life
0: is good here in in Salt Lake City. Well, we're certainly happy to have you on board, and we got to start at the probably only point of common ground between you, myself, and Coulter, (laughs) and that's that we're all Big Sky High School guys. I mean, that's pretty good right there, the three of us matriculating through the system at, uh, at Old Big Sky.
2: Yeah, I tell you that, you guys must be younger than me. I jumped in Big Sky the year that they started in 1980, so... Seems like yesterday, and then unfortunately when you do the math, it was almost 40 years ago, so (laughs) some good memories, though.
0: When you were at Big Sky, obviously a tremendous basketball player and so on, you got your first letter my understanding uh, of recruiting to Weber State but ultimately you went to play for Mike Montgomery at the University of Montana now obviously it makes sense you're in Missoula that you would go to Montana but you had other options what was it ultimately that was decisive for you in attending the University of Montana to play ball
2: well I mean there were a few factors that played a, a you know a big part in it I think first off I had just left you know my family situation in Shelby Montana and moved in with my brother Bernie who became my legal guardian in Missoula and so I had a little bit of a transition that junior year and really deep down inside you know as is the case with a lot of recruits the family's an important part of it my brother was an important part of it so uh, to not have you know to move away from home and to stay in a comfortable environment was big but I think you know probably even bigger than that was just the fact that you know the university of Montana was a great basketball tradition, you know, for many, many years. And Coach Montgomery had established himself there, you know, and certainly a big man, a big man coach. It was in the middle of my college career that they actually added the three-point shot. So things were a little bit different. A lot of people don't remember, but we played two, myself, Larry McBride, Steve Vanek. We had some, some meat. You'd have two big guys on the floor and it was all about you know, a level of physicality, and I thought that that fit my game and made perfectly good sense on a lot of fronts for me to stay right in Missoula and, and certainly wouldn't, wouldn't do anything different, wouldn't change anything.
1: Growing up in Montana, the way that basketball recruiting has evolved in the state has been interesting to watch because I feel like Back in your era, there was a lot more guys that were Division One caliber, and I don't know if necessarily that means there was a lot more or if they were just getting more opportunities or what the specific deal was. But now recruiting so national and people can get seen in so many different areas. As a guy growing up in Shelby and then going to high school in Missoula, at what point did you first realize that you might have an opportunity to play Division One basketball, and when did that become an unattainable goal for you?
2: Well, you know, you get pretty excited when you have, you know, letters and things coming through the mail you know, look, things have completely changed. It was a word-of-mouth deal back in the day. There was no AAU basketball. A lot of it was summer camp driven where you'd get on a campus. I remember I went to the Cougar Cage Camp in Washington State and, you know, and was trying to make a name for myself there. And George Raveling actually had come out and said that he didn't think I was Division One caliber, at least at that level. But it wasn't un, unusual for somebody to pick up the phone and say, "Hey, there's a you know a kid here in our hometown," and you know that was the way that it worked. It didn't have a, a lot of exposure, so it was uh, it was pretty regional. And obviously, with the lower population and not a lot of you know not a lot of competition in the state of Montana, a lot of those gems kind of stayed within the state and didn't venture out. I think that was the case. If you look at Robin Selvig's teams and all the the University of Montana men's teams, it was kind of the same thing. It was fairly easy to keep the better Montana players in-state, but that, that's changed now, obviously, with a lot of things. These kids get out and get seen, and, and I think kids maybe want to play at a higher level. So the landscape's kind of changed. I, I just was always grinding and trying to prove some people wrong, and you know that was a goal, certainly, was to get your college paid for. And I probably would say, you know, about the time I got to Missoula, uh, my junior year, I realized I could play at, at the AA level and started having some confidence that I would probably have an opportunity when, when the University of Montana and, and Montana State showed some pretty keen interest.
1: Well, I want to get into your time at the University of Montana, but first, what do you remember just about basketball in Montana back then? Do you remember having any individual rivalries or team rivalries? And what was life at Big Sky High School like when it was a brand new high school some 40 years ago?
2: you know it was interesting um you know i came from shelby and i don't know you know the listeners who's ever been up to the gym at shelby high school but through some oil money and a really great basketball neighborhood the shelby high school gym is really one of the nicest in the state they had divisional tournaments and district tournaments all the time and there were probably 5 or 6000 seats if i remember right So I was a little bit spoiled in that sense, you know, playing in a small town. And when I found out that I was headed to Missoula, my assumption was, is that, you know, things are going to be bigger, better. And and then I got to Missoula and they're, you know, they're nice gyms, but they're certainly not at the level that we had up in Shelby and Cutbank. So it was a little bit of a surprise. I mean, I did my homework. The football team at Big Sky, if I remember right, was 0-9. It was a first-year school. The women's basketball team was 0-22. And 22. <laughs> and, uh, and so here I am heading to the basketball, you know, to play at Big Sky. And there were no options. My brother lived in the Big Sky district. And I always said if we could emerge the Missoula schools that year, I think, you know, there was some – Tabish and Sprunk were at Hellgate and Persia and Mo were – guards at sentinel and i felt like i was one of the better bigs but we we kind of had this hodgepodge of teams and i wasn't really excited about going to big sky i didn't want to you know be in a losing situation and i wanted a good basketball opportunity and and lo and behold coach langless did a nice job and we kind of took a little bit like the bad news bears and took a group of misfits that were a little bit outcasts from their previous school that you know everybody knew they were going to big sky so they didn't get a lot of favorable attention in the year leading up to that. And, and I remember winning the city, I think we won the city championship a couple of years. Our first year we went 4-0 and or 5-0 and against the Missoula schools. So once we started putting it together, it was fun. But, but certainly the, uh, you know, the potential of where we were, it wasn't a really exciting time for us, but it, was, it ended up being kind of a fun time.
0: You had mentioned Mike Montgomery being a great coach of bigs, but what else do you remember about him as a coach and just as a person playing for
2: him? Well, I mean, you know, the coaching tree that you talk about, Heathcote and Brandenburg and Monty, and then you get into Stu and all the, you know, all the guys, you know, there, it was kind of the grisly way. I, I remember playing at Shelby, Montana, my high school coach my sophomore year, was Coach Tim Blaine, and he was a former Grizz. I think he played under Heathcote. And so I learned a little bit about the Grizzly way when I was a sophomore in high school. And it wasn't overly complicated, it had a lot to do with, with working real hard and playing real hard. And, um, you know, you just kind of learn, learn that concept not a lot of complications in game plans or anything like that, but the idea was to was to play together and to play hard and play as smart as you could. And so those things were always taught to us, um, you know, and, and Coach Tinks and myself and some of the other people that have been moved on into coaches. I don't think the apple fall, falls far from the tree. And, um, you know, those were some real fond memories. I remember what, one of my heroes was Derek Pope. used to watch him um, when I was at high school, heading over to watch Grizzly games, and then we got to be roommates when I got to the university. So I thought, you know, that was a pretty sweet deal to be able to get uh, mentored a little bit by by one of those heroes um, that you had growing up, and Zanin, Craig Zanon. and so it was it was a lot of fun, and I think it's a special little a special little place. You know, people on the outside don't understand. How how cool that basketball tradition and all the storytelling and the successful players and coaches that have been through there. So it's it's truly kind of a little, uh, you know, a, a special little place in the basketball. I think people in basketball understand it, but I hope all of us understood what what an opportunity was and how blessed we were to have that opportunity to be in that program.
3: do businesses throughout the Pacific Northwest turn to for innovative internet and voice solutions? Blackfoot, our cybersecurity, network uptime, ergo, and SD-WAN solutions ensure your organization is online all the time. Learn how Blackfoot can enable your business to move forward. Call 406-541-5000 or visit goblackfoot.com slash grizzgreats. Blackfoot, connect to more.
1: so interesting what you said about the grizzly way especially when it comes to big men because you look at the big sky conference now this will be my 13th year covering the big sky and the league has evolved into such a primarily guard driven league and so much of that's been because of the success of guys like damian lillard and some of the great guards montana's had as well but the one team that's had great big men throughout all of time has been montana and even now with the guard-driven way that they want to do it, even with a guard as a head coach, is Travis DeCure. Montana still last year had a great big man in Jamar Coe, before that Martin Browning so they've had some guys that have always been able to hold down on the block as well. Is there something you can pinpoint as far as why that's been? Why has Montana always been able to seem to find the dominant big man in the big sky?
2: Well, I think that's been part of the blueprint, part of the niche, and if you're a young big, you know you need to have some proof. You know, a lot of coaches, when you're recruiting a big man, will talk about how you're going to use that big man and how we're going to throw you the ball and how we're going to develop you and you're going to reach your potential and all those things. But there's so many programs that don't have a track record of doing so. So there's never going to be a big man that doesn't have an interest if he's involved with asking questions and looking at some of the history of why in the world you wouldn't want to be a part of, uh, of a program that for as long as anybody can remember has used the big man. Now what, what you're talking about is, is uh, basketball in general has changed. You know, the, I think the big man is being squeezed out overall last year. There were a number of times the points of emphasis and the rules that the officials were coming up with. So many fouls were called from what I always thought was teaching a big man how to post up. You know, you, you beat a guy to a spot and you claim the territory and, And then we throw you the ball and you, and you do your thing. Well, last year, as by defined by the rules, a lot of those were offensive fouls. You know, every time you turn around, it seemed like they're trying to phase the physicality and the big man out of the game. And the three pointer is obviously, you know, those add up a lot faster. And I think moving the three point shot back is a favorable move. I think, you know, potentially, and hopefully that's going to big bring the big man back into the game a little bit, but it's, you know, it's put put your money where your mouth is. And uh, whether it's Travis or Tinks or me or anybody, that was always going to be our niche. And certainly we had Tinks and myself, we were big guys. So you're not going to discriminate against a big guy, you know, and our, our guards always knew that it wasn't, it wasn't just going to be about the bigs, but we were going to get things started with having develop our big guys and throw it inside and everything kind of Goes around. It's like the old days when Magic used to make sure Kareem got going to start games. You know, you want to establish the post and then everybody else can play out of there. and, And Montana's always done a great job of doing that.
1: Let's go back to your playing days. When you look at what Mike Montgomery was able to accomplish during those seasons, you guys were a 20 win team each year. You guys made it to the Big Sky Final three out of four years, but never made it to the NCAA tournament. So, what do you remember about those times? How frustrating was it to not get to go to the big dance? But what was also the key to having such sustained success when Monty was the coach and you were a player?
2: I'd be lying if I said it It, it was such a disappointment each of those three years that you talk about. Um, you know, and each, each story, uh, each season kind of had a different story. I remember the one year when we lost to Montana State in the championship. I think Montana State finished sixth that year. The difference in that game was we were one of two conferences in the country that were experimenting with the three-point line. So you had a couple little guards from Montana State that were ahead of their time, and they were jacking threes, and they were going in. And our inside attack, if you do the math, can't keep up with with the power of the three-point shot. So that was kind of a little misfortune and bad timing. In that game, we had a game at uh, Weber, I remember, where the score was tied, and we were playing against Nevada, Reno, and we had a costly turnover at the end of the game that turned into a basket, so there were always, you know, some of these disappointments, and that's the thing about playing in the Big Sky Conference, it's a one-bid league, and you're playing, you've got to be ready when the time comes to shine in that moment, and You know the disappointment of not going to an ncaa tournament as a player is something that i i'll carry with me for a long time but sometimes it doesn't always have to do about the destination it's it's about that journey that we took and some of the disappointments we did win a lot of games we participated in the nit but probably more than anything is the friendships my best friends to this day are guys that we played with and you can you can win championships and cut down nets and do all those kind of things, or you can have some upsets and some disappointments, but nobody's ever gonna take away the the relationships and the friends and I wouldn't trade that, you know, John Boyd, John Bates, I wouldn't trade any of that. Todd Powell, Derek Pope, I mentioned him, and Mark Glass and Doug Selvig. You know, those opportunities to play with those guys, not to leave any names out is is worth and that's what the college experience was about for me and and I'll always cherish it.
0: When you talked about you talked about the evolution of of basketball and like you said when you came in there was not even a three-point line and now as a coach it seems like everything's kind of moving to the perimeter. What's it been like for you to coach and and just watch the game throughout the years and particularly you as a Big man. I mean, that's what you were. That's what you are. And so, how do you keep up and try and continue to make sure that you're putting your guys in the right places to fit the game as it is today and and over the years?
2: I think it starts. You know, you got to have shooters. You got to have multiple guys on your team that can spread the floor. I'm a big fan of the game, you know, and the way it is now. I, I we we've got three seven footers on our squad right now at Utah, and we're going to throw the ball inside and hope that maybe back in that lineup a foot and a half is going to kind of separate the contenders from the pretenders And in terms of who can make those. It's probably going to bring a little bit of a mid-range game back into it, but you've got to have guys in this day and age on your team, probably multiple guys that are on the floor, that if they're left open and they're standing at 20 feet, they've got the green light. I mean, I want to shoot open threes. We've led the PAC 12 conference numerous years and and three pointers last year, we led the conference. So I'm not going to fight it and, uh, you know, be an be, you know, old and crotchety in my ways and say, we got (laughs) to, because that's the way it is. And we can also make a lot of threes based on our inside play, you know, and it's kind of like in football, you got to be able to run the ball. You got to be able to pass the ball. And when different situations call for it, you've got to be able to do it. So, I'd like to think we've got a versatile roster, and that's what we're going to keep doing. You have to change with the times, and you don't want to get left behind. I think that's the big thing.
1: After your sophomore season, you got invited to the U.S. Olympic Trials, and I think that there was a a lot of really great players at that at the time, guys that went on to become all-timers, Hall of Famers, Michael Jordan, Patrick Ewing, Charles Barkley, guys like that. What was that experience like? What did you learn from that?
2: Oh man, it was one of my highlights. I was daydreaming about it. They're writing a book uh, on Charles Barkley and I had a gentleman from the East Coast call and we're setting up a time to talk about him. He was one of my favorites through that whole experience. I remember there were 80, maybe 82 players that got invited and I remember seeing the program with every name you know, in a little bio, a picture uh, of everybody that was in the camp, and I was going through it. I'll never forget it. Looked at every player on the roster, and when I got finished with it, I, I thought to myself, I knew everybody in this book, the 82 players that got invited except for me. <laughs> and, and all, that I, could, all that I could think about was that's what everybody else was saying too. You know, there was a lot of stars, a lot of big names, and it's like, okay, who's this guy? from montana bobby knight was the coach and we had three a days It was at the university of indiana and and they had the scaffolding built in the middle of their field house and it was basically man-to-man combat practiced an hour and a half in the morning hour and a half in the afternoon an hour and a half in the evening and it was crazy charles barkley was one of the guys i hung out with that's when i met michael jordan it was an exciting time in the dorms growing up and, and just being in the room and on the court with those guys. And I remember when the camp was over, they had a meeting, brought everybody in. It was about six o'clock in the morning because they wanted to be able to ship, ship everybody out on early flights and went through and announced the 32 guys that made the cut. And they did it alphabetically. And I remember Joe Klein, John Concac, and then they mentioned my name. I I just couldn't believe that my name was mentioned. And then when you got down to 32, what they did for like three days was play games. There were four eight-man teams, and we just played games in front of uh, a sold-out assembly hall, I think it was, where Indiana plays and NBA scouts and everybody was around. So what I didn't know at the time that I was dang close to making the team, I kind of got sick, and I got cut from 32 to 20. But there was actually a decent chance, I think. And, and playing for Coach Knight, he liked guys that could take charges and play defense. And I was a little bit, you know, on edge that way. And playing with a, playing with a certain chip on your shoulder, I think that he needed a couple guys on the team that did that. So, wonderful experience. There's just nothing like, you know, being a part of that group. And, and again, some of those friends and memories that you have from that, it, I'll always cherish.
0: You mentioned that you really liked Chuck. What was it about Charles Barkley that you had such an affinity for? It sounds like it was two way that you guys became friends.
2: I didn't know Chuck. Chuck didn't know me. I think the affinity came from the fact that I was from kind of a rural area in Montana. He was a rural area Alabama guy, two different sides of the planet, two different cultures. But we just we found a way to relate. We ate a lot of our meals together. Uh, hung out together. He hung out with Klein and Con- Concac. There were some SEC guys. He was at Auburn, obviously. Remember having a tag team wrestling in the room, and it probably never had four guys that big. It was <laughs> me and Chuck against Klein and Concac, and we broke one of the beds. Uh, I bet you did break room. one of the beds. Yeah, at least. <laughs> yeah, but I just you know there was a little there's some about simplicity. And if I'm not mistaken, Barkley led the camp in assists and rebounds. And he went in with those kind of goals. I remember him telling me early, but he was just an unbelievable, versatile player. And you'd hear a basket come cracking, you know, the collapsible rims. And there were plenty of dunks, but you could always hear when Barkley got his hands on the rim. And you'd look over and sure enough, there was Chuck hanging on the rim. Um, But I think we just related to each other and we stayed real close. You know, as we grew up and actually guarded each other quite a bit, it was obviously far more difficult for me to guard him than it was for him to guard (laughs) me, but I see him now and it's just one of those highlights. You watch him on TV and he's humble and he's intelligent and I think real relatable with what you go through in Montana growing up. It's not a lot of bells and whistles, it's treating people right and he was just a good old boy and, and, and love him to death.
1: Cruz Greats presented in part by Stockman's Bar. Stockman's Bar, a favorite local institution of Missoula. Great article in the local newspaper earlier today about the most affordable drinks in the city of Missoula. And the picture was our good friends Mike and Donnie Larson, the owners of Stockman's Bar. No surprise there. That's not false advertising. It is the cheapest beers that I have found in the city of Missoula. It is $3 from open until closed. There is no happy hour. There is no specials. It's $3 draft beers. They have not just domestics. They have all your favorite crafts. They got the cold smoke. They got the hay bag half. They got it all. And if you get some Dobie's Teriyaki right inside Stockman's Bar, it's $2. You're not going to find a cheaper beer anywhere in town.
0: Stockman's is amazing, man, because they have invented and reinvented themselves uh, over the course of time. You know, repeatedly and even over the course of a given day, you know, you go in there during the day, you can sit down, play some cards, have a nice conversation, bend at the elbow for a little while on some cold and uh, inexpensive beers. And a little later on, you can get yourself some food. Then they get the music cranked up. You can go in there and have yourself a real proper downtown party. Obviously, they got the poker table in there you can still sit down and play at from time to time. It's remarkable how many different ways you can interact with the same establishment. And uh, I guess that's what you get for having been in business over 50 years down at Stockman's Bar.
1: The history of Missoula, the history of the University of Montana Athletic Department is on display at Stocks, too. Some of the old advertising posters, some of the old... Uh, Magazine and newspaper ads that some of the locals and regulars have produced throughout the years that they have hanging up in there are fun to look at. They have the jerseys of every single Grizz guy that's gone to the NFL, signed on the wall. A favorite hangout for a great many of these former University of Montana men's basketball coaches. So head on down to Stockman's Bar in downtown Missoula on Front Street, $3 drafts from open to close. And as the famous saying at Stocks goes, liquor up front and poker in the rear. You'd won the Big Sky MVP before you went to that Olympic trial, but then coming back, knowing that you could compete with guys that were national and and worldwide names like that, how much confidence did that give you going into your last two years of college?
2: I think that was huge. you know. And even after my freshman year, I played on a U.S. team national sports festival and then made the U.S. team that we went abroad. And, and beside the confidence that that would instill in you, it was also the fact that I spent – a lot of my off season playing against some of the best. And and I've always told young kids and people at any level, if you want to get better, you know, play against competition that's better than you, you know, and don't give up if you can give up and lose your confidence or you can keep grinding. And so I felt like on paper and in a gym, I was certainly getting better, but then walking away from that and, you know, confidence is a huge thing in any sport. And, and just to know that I, had succeeded and did all right against some of the world's best. Gave me a little bit of a a positive vibe when I would come back to Montana and kept working really hard and got a little taste of that. You know, you get a little taste of playing with the best and you want to keep playing with the best. And I think that was a lot of motivation and inspiration for me.
1: People around here, we know exactly what we think of Larry Kristoviak's legacy and, and how great of a player you were at Montana. Certainly one of the greatest players in the history of Montana basketball. Certainly one of the greatest players in the history of the Big Sky Conference. The numbers, the statistics, the awards, it all bears that out. But in your mind, what do you think your legacy is? What do you think of, of just the memories that you left for other people at Montana?
2: Boy, you know what? I, I, I wish I could have a great answer for that. I don't, I don't really know. I just, the word that comes to mind is grateful more than anything. Just, you know, I can't believe even when you said that, it still kind of blows me away. I still feel pretty humbled by all of the success and the opportunity. I just really tried to treat people right. You know, again, the teammates, teammates that you play with and the coaches that you play for and the fans that were a part of that, you know, not many People are heading off to the NBA from Montana. And I just think we kind of all, we were kind of all in it together. So it was fun to be a a representative of that. And, you know, just tried to carry myself right. But now it's, now it's about raising my own kids. And, and, you know, I've always joked, everybody's got a scrapbook and a lot of people don't care to read about it and hear about it. It's more about what you're doing now. And uh, I'll always look, back on it with the fondest of memories but it's it's really more about a a present tense and and coaching this team and trying to be a father that's far more important than maybe what what took place years ago and and what you accomplished you know back then so
0: well, it came full circle for you. You went from being a player at the University of Montana to an assistant coach and a coach. But in between, you played in a, a little-known organization called the NBA, <laughs> uh, which was pretty impressive. And I'm wondering, even with the amount that you played you know, with those guys and making the 32-man cut and so forth, it's still got to be a dream come true, right, to have your name called and be drafted into the NBA. What was that
2: like? Yeah, it was it was pretty neat. you know. And I'll be honest, the night before the draft, the Portland Trailblazers called me at my house, at my brother's house, and said, hey, we just want you to, to sleep well tonight. They had the last pick in the draft, the 24th pick, and we just want you to know that at the very f- worst, if you don't get picked before us, we're going to take you with the last pick of the first round. So I was riding... Sky high, you know, I told everybody, my friends and family, and we had a big party at my brother's house and rented a hot tub and hooked up the TVs out back (laughs) so we could watch ESPN. And they got to the 24th pick, and with the 24th pick, the Portland Trailblazers select Arvidas Sabonis. So I was somewhat crushed. Uh, 25th pick, 26th pick, 27th pick. Uh, 27th pick was Dennis Rodman to the Detroit Pistons. And then ESPN went off the air. That was the end of the draft. So kind of standing in the backyard going, what in the hell just happened? And then got a phone call about five minutes later that I was drafted by Chicago, traded to Portland, traded to San Antonio all within a couple weeks. And you get a pretty good sense quickly of the business side of it. you know. And, but it was neat and enjoyed San Antonio opportunity to play. We didn't have a great team. But it was you know, I just unbelievable time it was work, it was definitely work, it was a dream come true, and again, it all comes back to the people you know the the fondness of the guys you played with, and knowing that you made that you reached that pinnacle of that profession and so now we're trying to help help young kids at this level sort it out, and um you know it becomes real real neat when you can help a young man play in the league and help him navigate his way, and it's, it's kind of like mission accomplished. So fun times, fun memories.
1: You mentioned how hard it was guarding a guy like Charles Barkley. That era of the NBA, there were so many tremendous big guys, and I think that probably being big, strong, having great effort, probably sometimes even wasn't enough because those guys were such just transcendent talents. What was that like for you to go against guys that were future Hall of Famers and guys that could do things that literally almost no one else in the history of the game can do?
2: Yeah, no, I I joke about it now. I'm not sure if it's a joke, but I'm I'm not sure I could play now. Back then, the Pistons were winning championships. The Celtics was McHale and Bird and Parrish and Mahorn. And, you know, I mean, it was Lambeer. And so I think it's, it's kind of a copycat league. Back then, everybody needed a couple guys on their roster like me to be able to compete against those big guys. And now it's a copycat league and everybody's playing small ball trying to figure out how to keep up with Houston and the Warriors and so you know time-wise I think I hit it about right a little bit of a hockey type player that was going to guard some guys and get physical and get on the floor so to me I feel fortunate you know I was in my prime when the game was at the right place for me otherwise I, uh, I might be sitting out
0: you had a, a wonderful career played you know about 12 years some of it not all in the NBA but most of it there is there a moment or a time in there that stands out to you though as you reflect where hey this was a high point for you or a special moment or team that you were with during your playing career professionally
2: oh man um you know there there were just a lot of a lot of great memories i think um you know, the five years in Milwaukee, the success that we had as a team and Sigma and and Ricky Pierce and Sidney Moncrief and Paul Pressey, the blue collar environment that Milwaukee had. I certainly had a great a great year in Chicago when Jordan came back after playing baseball. You know, you just always want to ring. And uh timing was a little bit off with that one and then got to play a season in in Orlando with Shaq and Penny Hardaway as young players. Those were highlights. You know, I think some of the adversity dealing with the knee injury and some of those, those memories are just as vivid and, and just kind of a lesson in, you know, not giving up and, uh, and to just keep grinding and try to stay in the fight. You know, the perseverance part of it, I think was, was, was big for me. And, and it's a good memory, you know. It's a good memory to to stay with it. Could have tapped out many times, and just wanted to maximize the opportunity to play as long as I could.
1: Do you have any good Shaq stories for us?
2: Oh, sure. You know, Shaq was second year player at Orlando, superstar, massive, massive individual. You know, we got into a pretty good fight in L.A. when we were on the same team. I was frustrated, Shaq. Maybe wasn't playing or as focused to to his craft as he should have been. it was more a little bit about partying in l a and so we we got into a knockdown drag out fight at the suggestion of Scotty Skiles. He told us to just <laughs> shut up and you two should shut up and quit being babies and just fight and It was like okay, that's against my better judgment, but let's do it um. <laughs> Seeing him is one of the very few people on the planet that can pick you up, pick me off the ground and kind of throw me around like a little teddy bear. And he grabbed me this last summer out on the recruiting, snuck up behind me and picked me up off the ground. And, you know, is just, he's one of those few people, uh, as I said, on the planet that can do that. So, you know, I think there's mutual respect there between us. And so it's fun. You know, it's fun. If you think about the special era, there's a baseball era with mantle and DiMaggio and, and I think the basketball era, and I may be wrong. It's kind of like what you, you, you know, you always like the music that's in your wheelhouse and, but you know, the birds and the magics and the Jordans and uh, Barclays and Keems and all those people, I think uh, that was a special time to be playing, you know, and, and the game has changed now. So you've got people that kind of, yearn or long for that that type of basketball it's not that way anymore not to discredit all the current stars but it was fun to be affiliated with that and you know to to know you were a, a part of a special era of basketball and bird and magic played the championship game in the huntsman center for crying out loud you know in 1979 and that's our home court right now that that day watching that game on tv was when I knew that I wanted I wanted a part of this you know I was 14 years old in Shelby Montana watching that game and it blows me away I'm sitting here in my office looking at the Huntsman Center but that's that was the site of maybe what's considered the greatest basketball game of all time the single most relevant game and um so it's just it's really cool to be right in the epicenter of all that
0: Larry when you finished playing you go into coaching, and you end up at the University of Montana, and maybe that seems obvious as a player there, but you'd been away for quite a while. First of all, what was the connection that you got to get on Don Hull's staff? And then secondly, why was it that coaching, which makes sense coming out of a playing career, but you could have done anything, so what was it about coaching that said, yeah, I want to stay in the game and do this at the collegiate level?
2: At least for me, I went back to Montana, finished my degree, and I thought... Like I was going to get in, you know, into the real world, got real estate license, I did an internship at Merrill Lynch, and a couple things I was really misled with is, is you think you're going to use your connections in real estate and financial advising. Now I'm sitting here saying, wait a minute, what in the world would make you think that your friends are going to trust you with their money or let you buy a house for them? <laughs> you know, that's just... It's a so,
0: very good question, so
2: it, Larry. Yes. <laughs> needless needless to say, it didn't pan out real well. And then what happens is after you get away for a little while, you, you know, my heart kept tugging me back to what I knew and what I was passionate about. And I missed being in a locker room. I missed talking the game and it really is the thing that I had the most knowledge about and that I missed the most. And so you reach out to everybody, you know, in the coaching business and, and you kind of expect somebody to hire you. And then you realize there's a lot of guys that think they should be hired, but you got to prove up. You got to be willing to work and sacrifice some things. And so the, the best advice I got, and like it happens a lot is, Hey, you got, you'll have an opportunity at your alma mater to go back. And I think I made 12,000 bucks in those two years working under Holt, So you're, you're proving that you're not in it for the money. We had some fun teams at Montana, and you get back on the court, and that's what you need on your resume. You know, you need to prove if you want to move up the coaching ladder that you're willing to jump in. And did that for a few years and worked out at Old Dominion for a year under Blaine. And I think one of the biggest breaks I got was, was uh, Bill Islett, who was the owner of the Idaho Stampede he called and offered me the head coaching job of the CBA team in Boise. And that was the year we made it to the championship game that year. And then they needed a head coach at Montana. And one of the prerequisites was somebody with head coaching experience. And if I hadn't had that one year of head coaching experience in the CBA under my belt, I'm not sure that Marie Porter, who was the interim AD at the time would have ever hired me. So you know, the Lord works in mysterious ways, and you kind of bounce around and, and chase your dream, and and that's, uh, that's where I got that opportunity.
1: Grizz Greats the Coaching Tree is brought to you in part by Mike Bryan of Berkshire Hathaway Real Estate. And at Berkshire Hathaway Real Estate... Mike and his fellow agents pride themselves in providing the community of Western Montana with full-time real estate professionals who are here for you whenever you need them. Their reputation as the state's most knowledgeable and available real estate group has helped them build unmatched trust in the Garden City and around the state of Montana. Mike Bryant has been a real estate broker in Missoula for more than 20 years. He has followed the Grizz for more than 50, and he is one of the most passionate Grizz basketball fans you will find anywhere. He's a member of the Grizzly Round Ball Club, and he still plays basketball twice a week. He fancies himself a pretty good hooper, and he says if Travis DeCure ever needs him, he still has one year of eligibility remaining, so give him a call. And if you need anything in the real estate world, whether it's commercial, residential, or anything in between, give Mike Bryan at Berkshire Hathaway a call, 406-370-8734. That's 370-8734. Mike Bryan, Berkshire Hathaway Real Estate. Berkshire Hathaway, your local real estate experts. Tell us about your time coaching under Don Holston, Blaine Taylor. What did you learn from those two guys?
2: There wasn't anything specific. It was again. It was all that you know. Blaine played for for money, and and there were there weren't any secrets. It wasn't like you know we were we kind of had our own language, but that that was the way we did things. That you know the plays and how you played defense, played offense, kind of your core, and um, and that was more of the same with all those guys. That's what each of those guys learned from somebody else, and that's what I was learning from them. You know, I did have the advantage of playing for some of that, too. So it just seemed really natural, natural to me, you know. And sometimes as an assistant coach, you you can be the good cop. That was one thing is you you build a relationship that's probably a little bit closer than head coach has a little more responsibility and and pressure. And so that's what I tried to provide for for both those guys when I worked with them.
1: Not a lot of guys get to coach at their alma mater as a head coach. So what was the moment like when you got the job? What was the biggest transition, learning how to become a college head coach?
2: Well, you know, it's, uh, it was an unbelievable opportunity. You know, I think we had a, we had a solid roster at the time. You know, a kid that I, it was funny because Jordan Haskett was on the team and his dad and I went way back in Shelby days growing up. Pete, his old, his dad was uh in high school so there was a little tie in there and we had Andrew straight and solid backcourt uh so it wasn't like we in, inherited a you know a bad roster we had some players had a great staff Brad Hughes and Andy Hill and and we just kind of grinded away and managed to win the you know the Big Sky tournament two years probably didn't have as talented of a team as we had when I played, but we catch the break, you know, and I always said that that to me was a little bit of a payback. Maybe we didn't win as a player at Montana, but to be able to win those championships as a coach was every bit as cool, but it's, you know, it's a grind. It's, it's work, it's recruiting. And we just, we kind of jumped in the foxhole together and everybody got it done. And and had some pretty good memories. So we, we we're always learning. I'm still learning today. You know, when you think think you got it all figured out, that's when life usually jumps up and bites you right in the rump. So you're always stealing stuff, but again, I had great mentors, guys that I played for and coaches that you want to model and you always were kind of building this little mental file of things that you you liked and maybe coach there's negative learning, you know, if a coach said or did something that you you thought was crazy. It's like, oh, I would never do that. So, as a player, taking notes and try to implement as much of that as possible when you when you get an opportunity to be the head coach.
0: And specifically, coach in two thousand six, the last not just Montana team, but Big Sky Conference team to win a game in the NC two A tournament. What do you remember about that game against Nevada? And what was that like to get a win in the tournament as a head coach and with your alma mater?
2: Words can't really describe it. It was here in Salt Lake, you know, and we had a team that had a few characters that were in the previous year when we lost to Washington. We were a 16 seed, got down early in that game, and then played a real competitive game for about 32 minutes. And I think, um, you know, some of those returnees that experience is a huge part of it. And our team was playing great basketball at that time, and we got the 12 seed. And as we know from history, twelve there's quite a few twelves that can beat some fives. We played a great game against Nevada, and I'll never forget the fans and thinking back to Coach Montgomery and you know a lot of the people that were here. It was it was a lot bigger thing than just doing it for us. It was the the history, the previous players and the coaches that were there, um, and I just remember going back to my, uh, hotel room, the hotel Monaco here in Boise and, and they had some bath salts and bubble bath next to the tub. It was about 25 bucks if you wanted to use it. And I'm like, you know what, I'm just going to pour a bath and sit here and soak it all up. And then you, then you got to jump back at, you know, you're trying to figure out how to win the next game. So A lot of media attention. There's nothing like March Madness. I think we all know, you know, to be a part of that. And if you can, if you can be a part of it at 64, that's a great thing. But you know, 32 and 16, media attention and the focus is—it's about as powerful as it gets in sports, in my opinion.
1: Kevin Criswell was one of the most popular and one of the most successful players on that team. A kid from Colstrip, Montana, and one of the. Last really, truly great players from Montana to really have standouts in the big sky. I know there's been a lot of guys that have gone to hire those. You know, Trace Tinkle at at Oregon State and uh, Josh Hustis at Stanford and a variety of other Montana guys. But as far as Montana guys that stayed in Montana and really etched their legacy, Kevin Criswell, one of them. What are some of your memories about coaching Kevin? Because he was such an unassuming-looking guy, but an absolutely ruthless competitor.
2: Yeah, you know, the first thing that comes to mind is tough. And early on, you know, we spent a couple of years together. I think he was stubborn and Kevin to be the first, you know, he'll laugh about it, but uh, kind of like a horse that needed to be broken a little <laughs> bit in terms of, I think he wanted to beat the other team oftentimes by himself. And, and he had to realize that he was dependent on some teammates. I think he really grew over the course of two seasons to be a selfless type player that bought in you know, was really be one of the guys that I would use as a definition for that and an example of of kind of converting his personality. And he and Virgil Matthews, I think, about in the starting backcourt in that year, in 2006, that won that game. I mean, those are those are some incredible memories. And to know how far that he came in those two years, it makes it even more special.
0: Coach, so many so many guys that have trafficked through as head coaches at the University of Montana have gone on to have such prolific careers in the profession. Stu moral Mike Montgomery, more modern day yourself, Coach Tinkle. What is it about this coaching tree that has allowed you guys to go on and be so successful in the profession, which is such a competitive one?
2: I, I don't know if you can really pinpoint, you know, any one thing. I think the word culture has to creep into the conversation you know, and just thinking back to Judd Heathcote days, and and it's like a family, you know, it's it's a family, and, and Judd's a, a distant grandfather to all of us, Brandenburg, and everybody just, you know, you, you end up becoming what you're around, and who you model, and what you're taught, and so those guys were kind of the the grandfathers, and the great-grandfathers, and the fathers, and And, you know, a really solid understanding of how to win basketball games. So that culture was super strong and that family, that family feeling was super strong. And it's a combination, I think, of knowing what you're talking about basketball wise, believing in it, you know, and executing it and being able to communicate that to players. But the one thing I think about, you know, uh, and I hope I'm in that conversation is is that we're all a bunch of good guys. You know, it's it's not just trying to be an expert at, at basketball, but it's, you know, having the ability to sit down and have a beer and be a real person and uh, and interact with people and share stories. I think that's a powerful thing, you know, and there really aren't many places on the planet that have that. And so to be a part of it, for me to be one part of that whole ancestry that family tree is is just really cool you know and I wouldn't bet against anybody that's a part of it because I think we were taught taught well on how to do it so it's it's a special deal
1: since you took over as the head coach University of Utah in 2011 do you feel like you've been able to bring some of of those dynamics you're talking about along with you
2: well that's what I know one thing about you know whatever you're doing in life it can't be it can't be fake it can't be manufactured and you can't be trying to do what somebody else thinks you should do you have to have kind of you know your priorities and how you go about your business and yet, you know like with the culture you have to have words in your culture that define you and and right or wrong it's just it's got to be passionate it's got to be heartfelt so that it is me you know i'm not i, I can't be rick majeris and I can't try to be somebody else and and do what somebody else has done. We do it the only way that we know how and uh and you try to get better all the time. Try to be willing to learn and and change with the game as we talked about earlier. I think if you're willing to do that, you got a chance.
0: Coach last thing for you. How great is Pearl Jam?
2: On a scale of 1 to yeah, no, they're off off the charts and they they just uh they keep getting better. It's like a fine wine. They're maybe not as angry as they were back in the grunge uh days. Some of that for me personally was a little hard to listen to, but Jeff Ament might be one of the finest individuals on the planet. Uh he does so much for the state of Montana and he's such a humble dude, you know, playing his bass and making a difference. So yeah, I'm all in. Uh, I'm all into what they're about, and I'm I'm very hopeful that they get back on tour so that I'll have a little something to do in my free time.
0: Well, I think uh, the last point of commonality was uh, the three of us and twenty eight thousand of our best friends at Washington Grizzly Stadium last summer for that very show. It was a great one. Larry, we really appreciate you being with us. This has been an absolute blast. You've been very generous with your time, and and, uh, and we're really grateful for you to sit down and, and, and chat with us about your time as a coach and your whole life, really.
2: Yeah, no, it's cool. I, I, it's enjoyable to spend time with uh, fellow Montanans and uh, always going to be a special place in my heart and talk about having a little place up on Flathead Lake to retire in. So I'm looking forward to it.
1: We've wrapped every one of these so far with just one last thought. When you think of Montana State, what do you think of?
2: Montana State is in Bobcats? Yes. (laughs) I think I'm losing you.
3: Who do businesses throughout the Pacific Northwest turn to for innovative internet and voice solutions? Blackfoot, our cybersecurity, network uptime, ergo, and SD-WAN solutions ensure your organization is online all the time. Learn how Blackfoot can enable your business to move forward. Call 406-541-5000 or visit goblackfoot.com slash Blackfoot, connect to more.
0: Colter, a remarkable guy, a remarkable life in a lot of ways, and uh, still doing it, obviously, at the University of Utah, but within the arc of the University of Montana, his two years overlaid immediately after the two years of Pat Kennedy. A pretty remarkable turn for the better when Coach Kristoviak was here, and then, of course, subsequently followed by Wayne Tinkle, who did struggle early on. They were not as good as when Coach Kristoviak was here, but he was there for the longer term Coach Tinkle was and was able to grow the program and build it sort of the way that he wanted to. But the reaffirmation of what Montana basketball was, it took place in those two seasons while Coach Kristoviak was the head coach.
1: I think that this time period between when Blaine Taylor left and Larry Kristoviak left, it showed you just how important culture and consistency can be for a program because under Don Holst, under Pat Kennedy, and under Larry Kristoviak, Montana didn't lack for talent whatsoever. Some of the great players of the 21st century, the guys like David Bell, played even though their teams might have not had that much success. But then Kristoviak went back to the mold of splicing in some transfers but also having very solid four-year guys. You saw guys like Kevin Criswell and Andrew Strait and Virgil Matthews go out on top with that win in the NCAA tournament. And then Wayne Tinkle reassumed that mold, and it did take him a couple years. I think that the change in personality, the change in coaching style from Christoviak to Tinkle was stark. I think Wayne rolled the dice on a couple drop-down guys from Power 5 conferences that were good, but maybe not as good as they needed them to be. But then as soon as he started landing his top four-year guys, Will Cherry, Kareem Jamar, Matthias Ward, then all of a sudden Montana really surged and and reaffirmed its place as the elite program in the Big Sky Conference. But I also think that because of the success Larry Kristoviak had, it reminded everybody internally and externally how important the understanding of tradition and how important the understanding of this coaching tree really is. After Kristoviak left... Montana was a hot job because they just won a game in the tournament, and they had just had back to back splashy hires with Pat Kennedy and Larry Kostovac. He doesn't get much more famous than that, sure. In terms of guys coaching in the Big Sky Conference, and they could have tried to go make a big splash again, but instead they didn't. They stayed internal, and they made a splash for a guy that had a lot of fame in the Missoula community, but maybe not in the worldwide basketball community like the two guys that came before him. When Coach Tingle really found his footing, then he really blossomed and. Like so many guys before him, went through a couple tough seasons, had a great peak at the end, and then got a great opportunity at Oregon State, where he remains today.
0: It was a great conversation. I also am reminded, too, you, you know, you hear during the, the conversation the still disappointment about having not played in the NC2A tournament, but the significant measure of closure that came from kicking that door down as a head coach at the school that you played at. And again, there were some great players on the team that won that tournament game, obviously, but I think Larry Krstoviac is the guy who's most remembered from that team that went on to do, you know, as as being instrumental in bringing that about. And so, a tremendous uh, uh, success story there, and still to this day, of course, in the Pac-12.
1: And so much of it too is this that even though Krstoviac is six foot nine, six foot ten, he always represented himself as an underdog, and he was able to channel that then into his players. It's my thought that Montana, this decade, and five trips to the NCAA tournament, they have been such the juggernaut of the league, the team that's taking everybody's best shot, that they have a hard time really assuming that underdog mentality. Coach K's teams, they didn't win the league either year. They had to be the underdog to make a run in the Big Sky tournament before then they could perform in the NCAA tournament. I wonder how much of a factor that has, but it's both stunning And worth praising, the fact that no Big Sky Conference team has won a game in the NCAA tournament since those Grizz beat Nevada back in 2006. So a long drought for the league, but it affirms and reaffirms just how spectacular that win was and how much credit Larry Kostowiak does deserve for leading them to that point. And pretty remarkable
0: that you had 14 feet of human being between two head coaches in that <laughs> handoff, huh?
1: Well, when they were coaching with each other, that had to be one of oh, the biggest puddles in America.
0: <laughs> right. Absolutely. Our absolute thanks and appreciation to Coach Kristoviak for spending the time. He, he was very generous with it to, to talk to us, obviously, while still very active as a head coach in the Pac-12. And so our thanks to him. And we appreciate each and every one of you out there for uh, hanging out with us. On the Pod, Grizz Grace, the Coaching Tree podcast, a fun one. Enjoy the bonus episodes and, of course, the next one in the succession with Wayne Tinkle, With Golden Juana's, I'm Ryan Tutel. Thanks for listening.